Thank you. I'm very pleased to be um, here today and have the chance to talk to you about my particular area. Um, it's lovely to see Richard, and who is one of the people who, sorry, not very subtle uh, promotion of my book, but I thought <laughs> we'd get this sort of um, the promotion over and done with, um, which kind of um, which came out of um, a conference that I organised at City a couple of years ago called "The Future of Humanitarian Reporting," looking at this rapidly changing world. And I suppose what my approach has been and you know, was, was with the book was to try and look at different sort of standpoints, so not just look at it from an academic point of view, but also to talk <coughs> to practitioners as well, so um, NGOs and journalists as well as um, thinkers in this field. And I think that's important because when we think about um, the coverage of humanitarian reporting, um, we think about, well, journalists um, traditionally tell the story, um, but NGOs have often provided the gatekeeping um, role to disaster zones. And then now, in a world of new media, we're, where citizens can create their own content, um, where does that leave the power dynamics of humanitarian reporting? Now, are different stories being told, or is it just the same stories in different ways? Or, And in the words of one former Reuters fellow, Nicola Bruno, in the sort of the 1440-minute news cycle, uh, this speeding up, thanks to the introduction of social media into this debate, where does that leave us? So, as I say, I will take this um, off. I do recommend the book to, to you because it has chapters by Richard, as I say, and also Paddy Coulter, who's here. Um, and what I wanted to do today was kind of sort of build on that and share a bit of my own research because it tries to bring into this, um, this idea this, these different voices that I was talking about earlier, journalists, NGOs and citizens, and how they're all affecting each other in humanitarian um, reporting today. I mean, to put it in brief, you know, journalists will tell you that they want to use different voices in their reporting, but, but do they? Um, NGOs will tell you that they want to ensure the voices of survivors are heard, but are they? And then ordinary people are creating many of the defining images and texts of disasters today, um, but how are they actually treated? So the research that I'm going to be talking uh, about a little today comes from my um, PhD, which is to be submitted next month, which I kind of used a sort of mixed methodology with that. And what this um, sort of paper that I'm talking about this afternoon, it kind of draws on kind of about 90 um, qualitative interviews that I did with journalists, UGC creators and aid agencies. I was lucky enough to get access to sort of agencies who belong to the Disasters Emergency Committee, which is the kind of umbrella organisation in the UK that comes together at the time, at the time of big humanitarian crisis. And I was also lucky to spend uh, time at The Guardian and the BBC in particular, where I did some p participant observation. And so a lot of my work this afternoon is going to be concentrating on sort of The Guardian and the BBC. And just as I say, not to go into detail, but the kind of the approach that I, I came from, I was sort of using a kind of field theory approach. So I, Bourdieu suggests there's a kind of shift in the journalistic field when new agents gain access. So what I was looking at is like sort of are those who create user-generated content, are they kind of potential possible new agents in this way and are NGOs when they transform themselves into reporters affecting the um, uh, sort of journalistic field and the kind of um, theorists I was looking at in particular I looked at the work of Voss et al and um, Russell Voss was looking particularly about um, political bloggers 
uh, Russell looks at um, did a lot of work around the French riots of 2005. And in their conclusions, well, they come to very different conclusions, actually. So Russell sees the explosion in new media as having this very transformative effect on how we report um, stories, whereas uh, Voss sees new media as basically maintaining a conservative status quo. And I guess uh, the kind of conclusion I, sort of I came to is that they're both... Um, they're both right and they're both wrong. I mean, I think Russell is a bit too optimistic about the whole thing, about this transformation. Voss is a bit too pessimistic. And it's clear that there's been a transformation in the way that we report live events like humanitarian disasters, but there's not a total transformation as um, was originally sort of thought. But perhaps um, the key thing that I think is that, you know, Russell makes this point about the fact that how both mainstream media, NGOs and uh, creators of UGC now use each other's practices and forms to try and get legitimacy. So, as I say, you see this kind of this appropriation of different roles. So, journalists behaving sometimes like citizens, uh, <coughs> citizens starting to behave a bit more like journalists, and NGOs uh, bringing themselves into the debate as well. Okay, so. To go back um, a long, long way, to go back to one of the most sort of important parts, uh, sort of important stories in humanitarian reporting, and that uh, amazing piece by Michael Burke from Corum. You may remember uh, the 1984 uh, report that he did um, that basically kick-started the whole um, uh, media interest and global interest in, um, in the Ethiopian famine at the time. It's the one that starts... Uh, Dawn, um, oh, I forgot the Dawn. Is, you know, Paddy knows it better than me, but um, I, I'm sure that um, a lot of you will have seen it. It's kind of seven minutes that basically um, led the BBC News at the time. And, you know, absolutely amazing piece of television that still kind of has the ability to shock if you watch it today. But what was really interesting for me when I went back and um, looked at it again is that. In these seven minutes, only two voices are ever heard, and that is uh, Michael Burke himself and that of a white Medicine Sans Frontier doctor. And I don't think that that would happen today in the way that we report humanitarian disasters. And in fact, uh, Michael Burke himself has said that he wouldn't do that report in the same way today. He did an interview with Al Jazeera English a couple of years ago to mark the anniversary of that particular report. And I think sort of, you know, both journalists and aid agencies will now say they have a commitment to hearing survivors within their reports um, or within um, the work that they do. Um, but how does that actually translate in real life? Uh, journalists and NGOs may say things, um, but do they actually do that in practice? And I just wanted to talk about the journalists to start off with. And basically, when I asked the journalists about how they thought humanitarian reporting might have changed, um, they talked about how the growth of social media had allowed more diverse voices to be heard, had allowed more diverse points of view um, to be um, raised. And um, the, the, what they talked about mainly was Twitter. And basically, I think that's because journalists are all on Twitter themselves. So that's what they tend to recognise more than um, anything else. Um, but they said, uh, you know, apart from the original, you know, sort of tweets breaking the story, what they were looking for um, were, when it came to user-generated content, were things like sort of photographs or video from the scene of an earthquake or a tsunami or whatever. 
Um, they did mention problems when they sort of they talked about their commitment to hearing different voices. So certainly, like sort of language difficulties if it was a non-anglophone country, because I was talking to British journalists in the research that um, I did. <coughs> and they mentioned sort of difficulties about sort of concern about authenticity, particularly when these voices were mediated through NGOs. But um, what they did do was they, they were very positive about the fact that they could reach survivors of humanitarian disasters. And they talked a lot about it. And so, for, for example, in the case of the Haitian earthquake in 2010... Uh, journalists at the um, BBC user-generated content hub, the special hub that's been set up at the BBC where they look for um, photographs, um, video, tweets that are coming in from, um, that can be found on social media sites. And they talked a lot about how they, they had, sort of as, it, as an eye-opener, about how many ordinary people that they could reach, that they, they saw this as a real difference. But what was interesting about this was actually um, when you sort of drill down a bit more, they were remembering this because it was the exception rather than the norm. So they, they remembered the ordinary people um, that they had spoken to, but these are only a very small part of the kind of people they were talking to with something like the Haiti earthquake. Um, it's kind of even maybe like sort of to push it a bit further, it might even have been a bit of wishful thinking that they thought um, that their coverage was dominated by survivors rather than the kind of the more conventional sources that they'd re- usually use. Because, um, for example, a study um, that was done on convergent news, um, BBC convergent news of the Haiti earthquake, uh, showed that only eight of the uh, web stream entries came from ordinary people in Haiti compared to the remaining 42 that were attributed either to Western NGOs or Westerners who were indirectly touched by the earthquake. And this is backed up by um, a recent uh, paper by Lynn et al, who looked at a very different sort of story, but tweets around the US election. And they kind of, um, con- Lynn et al concluded that despite the potential for social media to kind of create these kind of large public squares with more diverse people speaking, in fact, these kind of these large scale shared attention events, they might call them, actually appeared to undermine this because what happened in sort of these, these big events like this was the kind of existing <coughs> interpersonal dynamics were kind of replaced by an increased collective attention to existing stars of Twitter. So people were focusing much more on the sort of celebrities. And I suppose to kind of put this in sort of the most basic terms possible, what you want is if you have an earthquake or a typhoon is that you need Kim Kardashian tweeting about it, but you need her, <laughs> you need her to get her facts right because she's the only person that people are going to be looking at. They're not going to be listening to the ordinary person on the ground. So... As I say, there's a kind of, you know, obviously I interviewed the journalists and they would say one thing, but I wanted to kind of look to see how this bore out in a sort of more sort of quantitative way. So part of what I did was I looked at um, Guardian and BBC live blogs from the uh, uh, 2010, sorry, 2011 uh, Great East Japan earthquake. And um, the reason why I did this, because I think the live blog is a really interesting thing. Um, I talked a bit, bit about sort of journalists appropriating roles. And the live blog, it kind of mimics sort of, you know, something like Twitter, where you have these kind of, this uh, sort of constant regular update that you'd see on a social media site like this. But it's got the Guardian or the BBC brand, or indeed um, any, you know, sort of certainly in the UK, any British newspaper now has a live blog for any big event. 
Um, but it, so it's kind of synthesizing kind of journalism and new digital technologies and constructing this timeline. And as I say, when I asked um, you know editors in the semi-structured interviews, you know what you know, so when is um, UGC most useful? They all say, oh, in the immediate aftermath of a story, before journalists can get there. That's we use a lot then. But actually, the kind of sort of user-generated content they're talking about, sort of tweets and photos and things like that. When you look at the live blogs, you actually find that they're coming from much more traditional sources than the journalists um, often admit. So, say this um, Guardian live blog from uh, the Japan earthquake. So, it starts at 7.22am. You can't really see it's too, um, it's too blurred there. Um, but the first time that we hear any non-government or non-media organisation or any... Uh, non-NGO speak, it's 9.41am when uh, a tweeter has his audio boo, a bit of audio uh, reproduced on the blog. And, um, and of course, it may take time for user-generated content to emerge. People are fleeing an earthquake. They may have more important things to do than to stop and put an update on Twitter. But, you know, in the meantime, we've heard from uh, the Guardian's Tokyo correspondent, Reuters, Al Jazeera, the BBC, the US Geological Study, the UN, the Japanese Prime Minister, the Tsunami Warning Centre. So we've had a lot of very traditional sources there and often done sort of via tweets. So it looks like you're getting sort of, uh, sort of very traditional, um, ordinary people, but actually it's coming from uh, what I would call sort of primary t- Twifiners, so sort of primary definers. So they're coming from these uh, very traditional sources. And so this is just like a, a graph I did, which you can kind of see the type of content that actually ended up on the BBC and um, Guardian Live blogs. And it's, and it's pretty sort of similar. Um, but as you can see, like sort of the main people that you're seeing is actually newswires. So it's quoting other journalists or quoting other media organisations and kind of... Um, uh, authority figures are kind of way above, like sort of um, where the UGC, UGC, the ordinary people, are coming from. And um, actually, what was interesting as well is when we talked, uh, when I talked about who were the kind of the uh, eyewitnesses, the kind of people they were talking. A lot of it, particularly on the Guardian, uh, was coming from what you call below-the-line commentators. So it was people who'd commented on the live blog and then had had their comment shoved up. Um, but above the line by the Guardian themselves. <coughs> so, and again, this this idea of like what Schlesinger calls the helpful source. Um, you know, the Guardian knows who these people are. They can see because you have to register on the Guardian Live blog um, if you want to comment. So they can see whether they are sort of you know who they are, whether they've been you know done for abusive, um, blocked for abusive behaviour in the past, how many times that they've. Um, commented in the past. So, as I say, it's not fi- like finding someone out of the middle of nowhere. Um, just a quick comparison. Things do change, though. This is the Guardian Live blog from uh, two years later, from 2013, when it was the Oklahoma um, hurricane. And there's a very different look to the blog now. Again, you can't see it so clearly. But it's, uh, there's far more pictures, because it's now being aimed at mobile users rather than those who are looking on their com- uh, computer. And there's much more use of the Guardian um, multimedia team sort of editing UGC footage together. So it's coming under a Guardian brand. So they're not just putting up um, clips from YouTube anymore. They're kind of, um, they're editing them together and sort of saying this is a Guardian sort of mini film that they've done. So again, it's kind of, um, it's sort of 
as I say, it's kind of coming under like sort of a Guardian branding rather than, um, you know, I think this is a, is a really interesting development. And there's also kind of fewer below-the-line commentators at, um, at this point. Um, and that's because of the dominance of Twitter by this stage. So, um, and what's interesting about that is that Twitter has now become so noisy that um, in 2011, The Guardian were just looking at, you know, sort of tweets um, that were coming from on the ground. But because it's so noisy, they had a particular stream of verified users. Uh, so they were only looking at verified users. And so they were then kind of reliant on verified users retweeting unverified users to find, you know, who the actual people were on the ground. And then those institutions, as I say, who were verified, were getting more play. So people like FEMA, the American Red Cross, and even the Queen, a tweet from the Queen uh, features on the, um, the Guardian Live blog at that time. So we're kind of seeing a continual sort of change as we go <coughs> along. I mean, but that might sound like I'm saying that, um, that user-generated content hasn't made a difference and hasn't played a sort of significant role, um, which it has. Undoubtedly, it has. But I suppose what I wanted to look at for the second point is how journalists have used and treated um, those who've created that kind of content. So, as I said, user-generated content uh, creators, um, eyewitnesses, often provide the defining images of sort of, of, you know, Diane and Katz's sort of idea of media events. So, you know, here's two very well-known examples. So this is the Hudson plane crash from uh, 2009. And on the right is, actually, that's very interesting, this is the Bangkok blast um, of August last year. And this is kind of periscope um, sort of footage. Um, There's a a guy called Derek Van Pelt who basically went round with sort of the periscope app and sort of uh, filmed the immediate aftermath of the Bangkok bomb, sort of um, as he, you know, sort of in the immediate aftermath with no sort of kind of filter. And I actually recommend a really good piece, I wish I'd written it myself, um, by someone called Pete Brown of the Eyewitness Media Hub, who's written a piece called OMG, I Can't Ever Unsee That, which is about the effect that this can have when you have someone going into um, a sort of a particular event like this, where there isn't the sort of the distance or the time that you would get into sort of traditional journalism. So as I say, there's been a lot of you know, great research about how we, the audience, react to user-generated content or how we, the journalist, use user-generated content. So what I wanted to do um, was look at how these, you know, what these people, you know, as Jay Rosen calls them, formerly known as the audience, feel about the use of their work as, uh, by mainstream media. And that's sort of, I would suggest, uh, less well-known. So what I attempted to do to kind of um, look at this sort of other changing role was to contact all the UGC providers who contributed to the first day of those um, uh, Japan Quake um, 2011 (coughs) blogs. And I also looked at a piece of wider research at people who'd contributed content um, for the Oklahoma hurricane and the Vauxhall helicopter crash. But... um, does it mean that we're actually hearing different points of view in the kind of stories? Um, Wardle and Williams did a report back in 2008 about who is a typical 
uh, creator of user-generated content, and they came to the conclusion it was a 45- to 54-year-old male employed full-time as a middle manager. Um, so were the people that I contacted, were they similar? So, this is it. so they're, they're slightly different. So with The Guardian... Uh, they're all under 40, uh, the people that I contacted. Um, unsurprisingly, they're mostly expats. I say unsurprisingly because, basically, this was... Um, you know, the Guardian was still very much... Although it's obviously expanded to Guardian American, Guardian Australia, it's still very much identified with a British audience, um, I would say. Although the Guardian would probably argue with me for saying that. But anyway, um, so the kind of people it was, it was kind of English teachers, it was IT specialists. One was an engineer, one was a music writer, one was a comms specialist. And they were all based in Tokyo, so they weren't sort of near the epicentre, they were actually all in Tokyo. And the BBC's um, accidental journalists were... They were more diverse, so there was a bigger age range, and there were more sort of um, there were different kind of jobs. As I say, there was a professor, teachers, trader, diplomat, actor, student, small business owner, tourist guide, um, and uh, you know most of them again came from Tokyo. Although actually, the BBC's blog ran longer than the Guardian, so you actually get some from Hawaii because the BBC extended its blog because there was a tsunami, there was a tsunami alert in Hawaii after um, the the Japan quakes. So that probably, again, reflects sort of, you know, a different global reach of the, the BBC. Um, as I said, sort of with The Guardian, the majority of those um, who I contacted were white. They were mainly sort of ABC ones, so very sort of uh, very middle class. And actually there was a, a big preponderance um, of, they were very much uh, male there were a few that, who didn't respond to my request for interview, and I couldn't tell you know, what their, their gender was from their Twitter handles or whatever. But dis, despite the few that I couldn't contact, um, it was very much still a male domain. So um, how does this like, to really alter from uh, journalists, really? Because <laughs> uh, there's an awful lot of kind of middle-class, middle-aged uh, white male journalists. Um, so... Um, what was interesting for me was like, sort of, um, what, how these content providers were treated and how they felt about it. So I asked them all, you know, were you contacted um, for your tweet or photo or whatever to be used prior to publication? And actually, as you can see, the majority of them um, had no idea. Um, in fact, there was a kind of understandable divide between those who'd kind of posted things on Twitter and those who'd actually gone on the Guardian or BBC websites to post messages themselves. But certainly those who'd posted tweets had no idea, the majority of them, that um, their stuff had been used. And actually, the ones who did know uh, tend to know because their Twitter followers started to suddenly inexplicably jump. They tweeted something that they thought about the earthquake and then suddenly, as I say, there's a guy interviewee G who saw, suddenly saw his followers start to go up by 50 an hour and the uh, interviewee A, who's a music writer, who saw his jump by 100 an hour. But, um, you know, this, for the vast majority of them, you know, they had no idea that this was happening. Um, but, you know, most of them kind of took the view that they had posted in a public place. And so, therefore, while they didn't expect it to be picked up, then they felt that, you know, they'd put the information out there in the public domain, and so it was out there. You know, and of course, those who directly commented on The Guardian or on, you know, filled in a BBC Have Your Say form, you know, kind of realised that this might might happen. You know, and often they hoped 
it might happen. Uh, what they didn't know is there was a, a lack of any prior notification sort of for, for using it. And as I say, some people were really positive about this. This guy in UEH, um, he was, you know, he saw himself as an open news guy. I think it's kind of significant. He'd actually done a journalism degree. He wasn't working. He was working for a technology company. So he had kind of some media literacy. But for other people, like sort of interviewed uh, Dee, you know, she had sort of, you know, she had no idea. I kind of contacted her and she's like, oh, I didn't know. Like sort of, this is, uh, this is news to me. Um, and only one of them actually, like sort of um, interviewed G, who's a uh, student, actually <laughs> raised the point that no one had actually asked him if he was who he said he was because um, he, like sort of, he'd, he'd tweeted and he had a kind of uh, fairly unusual tweet name. So you might have thought that he might not be who he was. I mean, he was, he was legit. But he kind of raised the point that um, he was surprised that his tweets had been news and no one had just checked out that he was actually who he said he was and where he said he was. Um, well, is any of this important, though? You know, as I say, they had, pu- they had published in, the, um, in a public domain. Does it matter? Well, I think it does, because there's been lots of debates about how we portray people caught up in disasters. Um, does that alter if it's their content themselves that is being used? And there's been a lot of, uh, there has been a lot of work about like, how journalists should treat people who are caught up in tragic events or disasters. You know, the idea of the cl- classic death knock, the doorstep, these kind of rites of passage um, that journalists have when you have to approach a grieving family and you know, are often given to you know, inexperienced junior reporters because no, no journalist really loves doing it. Um, But I think there have been considerable efforts to educate journalists. So in the UK, certainly, you've got Section 5 of the um, IPSO code and the PCC code before it, which specifically deals into intrusion, into grief and shock. And there's also, for TV, there's the Ofcom um, Section 8.16 of Ofcom's Broadcasting Code guidance. But these kind of guidances tend to focus on, uh, you know, how journalists deal with people when they meet them face-to-face, or over the phone. What we're kind of just sort of starting to think about is what I call the virtual doorstep, when journalists are kind of reaching people, you know, sort of um, online in this way. And so um, basically, you know, there were people who found themselves, you know, with this kind of virtual doorstep and found it really traumatic because they had put a tweet out there to, you know, they had a, a few dozen followers, if that, and then found themselves basically deluged with um, sort of um, comments from journalists or, you know, or found their stuff used that then meant that they ended up getting trolled or stuff like that. And so you had things like, you know, um, as I say, someone, someone like Interview EH, you know, was, was delighted that his stuff was used. But then you've got people like sort of, you know, Interview EJ, who's, uh, who's a teacher who ended up deleting his Facebook account because he felt under such pressure. Or like sort of, um, you have Interview EK, who you know put a tweet out? It was used on one of the live blogs, and then he got every single journalist jumping on him, wanting to do to do an interview. And he found it. And he the words that he used is that he became overwhelmed and stressed. And then you get sort of um, interviewee L, who sort of fills in, sort of ends up on a live blog and gets reprimanded by his company. He thought you know he'd put something out into the ether. You know, thought a few of his followers would see it, and then like sort of is identified as a member of a company and gets told off by them. And you even get someone like interviewee M. Now, she, she was in Wales. She wasn't anywhere near the earthquake at all. But uh, the BBC was obviously, like, sort of, it was, must have been a quiet time. So she put the equivalent of a kind of pray for Japan tweet up. And this ends up on the live blog. And, 
anyone who's sort of used Twitter, you know, there's a kind of idea of like how, you know, how uh, real is your grief? And people get very like sort of upset sometimes if they feel that people are appropriating grief that they, they shouldn't feel. So she got sort of hugely pursued by sort of online trolls who are basically saying, you know, how dare you be like sort of tweeting about this? You know, you're in Wales, you're nowhere near there, like sort of get... And, you know, she, could have, she just put this tweet up to like sort of a few of her followers. But as I say, because it got used by a live blog, um, she then got sort of deluged. So... I think it's kind of it's really interesting um, because obviously there has been a lot of positive stuff about how user-generated content um, in humanitarian crisis can kind of move away from what sort of Chiliaraki has called the anaesthesia of disaster reporting. And you know, audiences continually, sort of, if you ask focus groups, they continue say how positive they find it to hear from like sort of survivors, but. Where does that kind of leave us? And where does that leave our kind of perception of privacy and permission? Um, as the privacy theorist Helen Nissenbaum points out, you know, the fundamental problem here is a breakdown in what she calls contextual integrity, which basically means privacy means different things in different situations. And privacy is violated when people don't respect two types of contextual norms. So that's the norm of appropriateness, you know, sort of what kind of information is shared, but also that of flow and distribution, which is where the, whom the information is shared with and where it's shared. And the problem is, with kind of social media sites we're finding out, is that it's very easy for the, this breakdown to occur, and particularly when this kind of stuff is taken off social media sites and then pilfered, you could put it, by the media, then these norms get transgressed even further. And of course, as I say, like the UGC creators that I spoke to were aware of this. They like sort of they they very much put the blame on themselves. They said, "Well, we put it out there, you know, sort of, you know, like sort of." Although they kind of felt there was a, there was a divergence. You felt you're fair game if you put it on Twitter. If you put it on Facebook, then uh, people shouldn't take it. There was different kind of privacy. But they kind of saw themselves as like eyewitnesses, not journalists. They didn't see themselves as behaving like journalists. And what they found overwhelming was the fact that it wasn't just about their tweet in the end. There's kind of a lot of personal attention to them. It wasn't just about their material. And that's what they found confusing. And that was what they found sort of particularly sort of stressful. And so the way that they dealt with this kind of virtual doorstep is slightly different. Obviously, if it was a doorstep in real life, you know, you slam the door or you don't answer it. What they did on the kind of virtual doorstep was they kind of took back control by starting to delete. So, as I say, they would delete their Facebook account, their Twitter account, or this guy that I'm quoting here, he was um, he did a lot of Vine videos around the Oklahoma hurricane and he deleted all his videos. He took them down from everywhere, so you can't find his videos now. And that was the only way that he could take back this kind of measure of control. And I say the journalists, when I kind of asked them about this, they kind of often paid lip service completely to the idea that privacy should not be invaded and permission should be asked. But they didn't really show any recognition of this idea that, you know, the stressful nature of the, sort of the virtual pack. Um, and, you know, if you look, you will see kind of long, um, long tweets where people have asked for permission, have actually got as far as asking for permission to use a photograph. But there's no kind of preamble to say, I hope you're okay, you've just been in the middle of an earthquake or a hurricane or whatever, please can we use your photo? It's, um, uh, it's, it's very interesting and something that I think needs some more work. 
Just really quickly, though, about changing roles. Though, as I say, people who identify themselves as eyewitnesses, not journalists. But what was really interesting: those who knew that their stuff had been used, you know, alerted sort of via you know their tweet follow, Twitter followers going up or something. They did. Some of them did start to change their behaviour as a result. You know, for some of them, they talked about playing an empathetic or altruistic role. Um, the idea, like sort of, there was um, interviewee P, who's a he worked at an international school, said he was grateful that he was able to reassure families that their loved ones were safe. And as you can see, interviewee A sort of talked about this responsibility to tweet actual news. He kind of had gone beyond, like sort of, just like sort of, you know. Um, commented, you know, sort of just saying, oh, this is where I am, and kind of felt that he had to had this responsibility. And interview R, I think she's really interesting. She was a, a trader at the time, and she had sort of originally started tweeting just to connect with other people um, in the, who were caught up in the earthquake. But because she's quite unusual, she's tweeting in English. She then started to get a lot of um, response from abroad as well. And so she then started to talk about having, again, having this serious responsibility about all my words, even though she defined herself as a common citizen. And when we look at like, sort of things like the, um, the tweets of the, the live tweets of the um, Osama bin Laden uh, raid, people like sort of Myers and Stearns have talked about you know, people who don't identify themselves as journalists you know, participating in what they call acts of journalism. So they're not just simply saying what's happened, bearing witness. They're actually sort of going beyond that. And this is what I found with some of the UGC creators, that they were kind of not just sharing experiences or commenting on things. They were actually actively trying to put out information and indeed correct wrong information. So again, interview A was, was very interesting. He got very cross because he felt that tweeter, tweeters were, try, were starting to tweet what they thought journalists wanted to hear. And he, there was one guy that he found, um, he'd, he'd seen, who was a guy in, forgive my pronunciation if this is wrong, in a place called Nagoya, which is quite far from the epicentre, who was, who ended up, a, who'd been tweeting, then ended up um, on TV, like sort of talking about the dramatic experience that he had gone through. And he, as interviewee knew where he was located and said he, he was so far away from the epicentre, it couldn't possibly have happened like that. And so he ended up, this may not look very exciting, it's a, it's a pint of milk. Um, but basically, interviewee um, tweeted this to show that had been where it was uh, at the time of the earthquake and it hadn't fallen. So he was trying to sort of correct this idea of, you know, to put the relative strength of the quake um, in different parts of the country into perspective. Okay, just to come to my sort of third and final point, we've talked about the journalists, we talked about the creators, but the very important third part of the triangle is NGOs. Um, you know, they have often acted, when we're thinking about humanitarian reporting, they've acted as the kind of gatekeepers of disaster zones, they often alerted the media, and they've helped frame the story. And so what do they think of modern humanitarian reporting? Well... First of all, as you can see, they're very strong that we should be hearing from survivors, we should be hearing from beneficiaries. You know, most of them will have like, sort of stuff written down say, saying this. But um, do they actually do this in real life? Well, yes, they have tried to do this. Uh, these are two good examples. We have Oxfam GB's Twitter takeover back in uh, 2013, where Oxfam GB gave their Twitter feed for the day to um, Hassan, who was um, a refugee in the Zatari camp. And on the right here, we have, say, the Children's Mummy Bloggers campaign, where instead of taking journalists out 
on a press trip. They took um, mummy bloggers, bloggers who, uh, who are parents, who usually um, blog about what it's like to be a parent. And they took them out to Bangladesh to raise awareness of the Millennium Development Goals Conference. And both of these like, kind of went down sort of very well. So particularly Hassan's Twitter takeover, he like, sort of, um, he, his tweets were kind of unmediated and they, they were obviously sort of coming, coming from him. And he, but what was particularly significant was he posted a lot of pictures. So this is his children, and that's his newborn baby, Lean, who'd been born a couple of days before. And so, I mean, again, this is interesting because thinking back, back to that private-public thing, I mean, these are kind of private family photo albums, but they were going out on the Oxfam GB Twitter feed. You know, there's a kind of blurring of lines there, I think. But um, what did NGOs actually really think? So when I asked them what they thought about Hassan, they all said, oh, what a brilliant idea, great stuff. Like, sort of, um, yes, of course, we should be using more beneficiary voices, more sort of um, survivors. So that was the first question I asked. And they sort of said, oh, yes, and we think it's a really good idea to help sort of survivors record their experiences with their own phones or by cameras distributed by NGOs. Um, But actually, when I asked them, well, um, yes, would you do this themselves? And they kind of were a bit, like, sort of more reluctant. Um, They kind of would then sort of talk about it, like, sort of, um, sort of saying that it was impractical. They'd much rather do the traditional thing, which is where they interview the beneficiaries and then they give those quotes to journalists. They still wanted to act as that kind of intermediary. And, um, you know, many of them were actually like sort of kind of, you know, if you actually sort of push them further, they would say things, well, you know, Twitter, it's 140 characters. There's a problem with nuance. It's a, like sort of, um, in fact, sort of one even dismissed it as a kind of novelty package. Um, but and what was interesting was only one agency was kind of brave enough, I think, to say what the real thing was uh, about it was that, um, which I'm sure probably other agencies shared, was that they were nervous about what might actually be heard if you handed over sort of um, some more openness to beneficiaries. And as I say, it says it's a risk and it's an opposite to a lot of work where it's about controlling the message. However, where, the, where many were willing to allow ordinary voices <coughs> in some way, and the way that they chose to do it was not by sort of through survivors or beneficiaries, but by the use of bloggers, like the mummy bloggers that I talked earlier. Now, so you're not getting the voice of the NGO here, or NGO employees, you're, but you're not getting a voice of a survivor or beneficiary either. What you're doing is you're getting somewhere in the middle. And... Also, like sort of NGOs like this because they see they're free of the taint of the mainstream media and the kind of cynicism that they might perceive that the mainstream media bring to this. And as I say, the impetus for this was um, the 2010 Mummy Bloggers campaign by Save the Children when they went out to Bangladesh. But there's been a host of copycat trips since then. So, again, does this mean, though, that we're having seeing sort of different points of view coming across? Well, having looked at sort of um, some of the blogging trips... Uh, the bloggers that NGOs tend to take out tend to be, in the main, although not exclusively, it's true, but in the main, they tend to be white, middle class, middle aged, sort of from a sort of privileged background. So, again, how different is that from the voices that we would have heard before? And because these are not trained journalists, again, there are, sort of, there are often like sort of kind of problems around this. I mean, imagery started to be sort of a problem for some. Like, one blogger wrote of her discomfort after a fellow blogger featured a photo of her with a local child. She wrote, I felt I was a throwback to the 19th century, a well-meaning white female missionary cuddling an African baby. And while NGOs make a lot of the fact that they have less control over bloggers than they would say they 
would say have over journalists. Actually, I'm not sure that that's completely true. There's a sort of question to be asked there. I mean, many of the bloggers uh, were hadn't had any experience of a sort of foreign um, press trip like this before, and so you, you end up with kind of bloggers writing with real awe about their experience. There was one that said, "This is my first ever trip to the African continent. I'm genuinely a big fan of this agency's campaign," which I would suggest it, that kind of um, language you wouldn't often get from the mainstream media. Now, Chidiaraki points out that we live in a society where our own private feelings are the measure against which we perceive and evaluate the world and others. And while news becomes part of this culture of intimacy, it implicitly allows us to focus on our own sufferings and disregard those others outside our horizon of care. There is simply a limit to the empathy we can have. So there's also a question here about, like, sort of, while we may look at a Facebook page or click like on it or w- watch video tributes on YouTube or read tweets from refugees, this doesn't mean necessarily the distance is being overcome. And NGOs like, sort of, who talk about their responsibilities to beneficiaries may well want to bear that in mind because in the Mummy Bloggers campaign, what was really interesting was effective as it was, and it was very effective, that's why there's so many copycat trips, was a lot of the emphasis was on how the Mummy Bloggers was affected. It became less about the beneficiaries and more about how they felt. These are some of the quotes for, that were put on, the, um, on their websites when they, when they blogged about it. Okay, so just to conclude, where does that kind of leave us, a sort of whistle-stop tour of sort of humanitarian reporting? Well, I guess that means that we are in a state of change where, as say, journalists, the public, and NGOs are all kind of trying on different roles and each other's roles for size. So journalists have started to use uh, social media, and that's you know well known. I'm sort of not saying anything controversial there, but I would argue that in a way that often still reinforces dominant sources rather than more diverse voices. Um, creators of UGC, although they are generally pleased to be to be used, um, can often find that they their stuff ends up being used way beyond what they ever expected, while some then start to act in different ways to to sort of to engage in what you might call acts of journalism. And NGOs who have this commitment, as I say, to um, allowing survivors to be heard and allowing different voices to be heard are still unsure about how best to achieve this. And I guess sort of, you know, many issues around privacy, permission, um, roles still sort of are still unresolved. You know, certainly both journalists and NGOs need to take account about how they treat those who deal with. But, so, is this a a world of diverse new voices? Well, not quite yet, I would argue. Thank you. Uh,